0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Shannon Paulus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 2nd. On today's show, we'll talk about the growing telehealth industry, which allows patients to complete a visit at the doctor via video chat or even just a secure message system. To figure out the benefits and potential drawbacks of telehealth, I'll talk to Roy Schoenberg, president and CEO of American Well, one of the first big players in the space. After the interview, my colleague Erin Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. On July 10th, Future Tense and the Just Space Alliance will be holding an event in Washington, D.C. called How Will We Govern Ourselves in Space? The focus will be on how we might ensure that our next frontier is one that reflects our most humane and democratic values. Then, on July 11th, Future Tense will host a screening and discussion of the 1996 movie Mars Attacks. That's also in Washington, D.C. For information on both events, go to slate.com slash live.
1: No necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Okay, it's time to talk about the growing telehealth industry. If you don't already know, that's where patients meet with medical doctors or mental health professionals remotely, via video chat or even just secure email messages, instead of physically going into a doctor's office. It's still a fairly new practice, and the regulatory framework is still being figured out. In some cases, telehealth is even inverting the way we access meds. I recently reported on sites like HIMS, HERS, and Kick that have you meet with a doctor over just a few short messages after you've already requested a specific drug, like beta blockers or erectile dysfunction medication. That's an arena of telehealth that I'm a little worried about, but I also see a therapist over a video every week, which I love and find very effective. It's a confusing world to navigate, and joining us to talk about this is Roy Schoenberg, president and CEO of American Well!, which is one of the first big telehealth companies, Roy. Thanks for joining us.
1: Pleasure to be here, Shannon.
0: So to start off, for listeners who might not be so familiar with the practice, I'd love it if you could tell me about the first time that you personally saw a doctor over video.
1: Oh wow, <clears throat> you're you're taking us to to history. <laughs> we started American Well about twelve years ago, and the truth is that when you know when we started doing it, a lot of people really objected to telehealth. Some of it was the concern that that you described, is this going to be really good health care? Is this going to be a good way to have a relationship with a physician? But we were very fortunate that the first place where we were actually able to deploy telehealth with our first customer was the state of Hawaii. Blue Cross Shield of Hawaii was was the first one that wanted to use telehealth. And the reason for that was because, you know, if you've ever visited Hawaii, there's a lot of different islands and in order to get healthcare, especially serious kind of healthcare, you have to literally take a plane to go from one island to the other.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So this was two thousand and nine that you know the system was deployed. I ended up, of course, you know, traveling to Hawaii back and forth. And funnily enough, even though it it looks like you know heaven on earth, I ended up getting the flu. And it took me a while, it took a while to register in my mind that even though I didn't know any physician there and I didn't know where to go, that service was live. And the first time I ever used telehealth was for a simple flu in the middle of a beautiful, beautiful kind of beach environment in Hawaii. I got to see a physician. They sent me a prescription. And for me personally, that was the first live telehealth experience.
0: And what was that first visit like? Did you find it weird?
1: (laughs) It was funny because, of course, I had I was invested in the platform. It was just as much that I wanted to get care, as much as I wanted the, the, the visit to succeed. So I was very biased. But, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, if the end result was not only to get reassurance, but also to really kind of, you know, walk through the line of actually seeing through my throat and, seeing enough evidence to know that this is a strip and and get the the, the right antibiotics, that worked out. So, you know, I'm here now talking to you. So healthcare must've worked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, for folks who've never done this before, I think it just must seem so weird. The idea that you can talk to a doctor over video and you can have a physical ailment. And, you know, normally when you go to the doctor, you have your blood pressure taken and they look in your ear with that little flashlight. How does all of that work over video?
1: Well, because telehealth has grown, you know, so well over the last couple of years, more and more capabilities around physical examination have been added into the mix by way of both, you know, very simple things that we have, like our iPhones that now have the capability to do much more by way of healthcare than they used to be. Um, a lot of devices that are for the home, including connected blood pressure cuff and glucometers if you're diabetic and peak flow meter if you have asthma and, and electronic scales, you know, if you, if you have heart failure. And then there are devices that have been purposely built to work with telehealth that literally give the physicians the ability to examine you as if they were in the room. You know, there's, there's more than one company. Personally, I think there's uh, a device company called Taito, And I think what's really pretty about their product is that not only that it kind of feels very friendly, it doesn't, you know, it's kind of a a thing that you hold in the palm of your hand and it kind of self guides you to move the device over your lungs, over your heart, you know, how to move the device when it looks into your ear Mm -hmm. Uh, of artificial intelligence that's built into that. But the bottom line, is that, you know, if you are the physician remotely, it is pretty much just like if, if you're moving your stethoscope or, you know, looking in someone's ear or looking in the throat. And, you know, it, it really kind of goes significant distance into expanding how the remote physician can examine you and understand what you have and give you treatment.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about the doctors who are available on the direct-to-consumer platform? If I go to Amwell.com and want to see a doctor... Am I seeing someone who's, you know, part of a virtual care group or, like, a freelance doctor?
1: Well, you see, the physicians or the clinical services that are available in the system are coming from a lot of different sources. There is a network of clinicians who is primarily available on our various systems, um, and they're part of a national physician group uh, who is mostly, and we encourage, you know, all of the physicians in that group to do both telehealth as well as physical care. But there, these are clinicians who are willing to commit to be on the system for shifts, not, like, not unlike what they do in a hospital or, or, or in a clinic.
3: Mm-hmm. We also
1: have a, a broader group of clinicians who are actually kind of merging their practice, their physical practice with delivering telehealth. And with those clinicians, there is a different kind of engagement in which they actually tell us pretty much kind of on the fly when they believe that they are going to have a couple of hours. And we, based on their licensure and credentialing and everything else, you know, we make them available to the population that they're allowed to see, like in Mm -hmm. the state or, you know, in their health insurance plan or whatever it is. And then there are those clinicians who are kind of made available more on their term. And these are clinicians who can come in. They don't get kind of... uh, put into a shift, they log in for a couple of hours, and during that time, they participate in the pool. Mm -hmm. But irrespective of whether you belong to this group or the other group by way of the hourly engagement that you do, all of those clinicians have to go through a fairly aggressive background testing, both in terms of their clinical background and their personal background, in terms of their credentialing, their licensing, the system is actually built and connected in real time to the Federation of State Medical Boards to make sure that anybody that wants to, to practice healthcare on the system will have to go through the same thing that they need to go if they applied for a job in a hospital.
0: I'm imagining that it's a little bit like Uber drivers once you're like approved and vetted and they know you have a driver's license and a good star rating and whatever, you can log in for a little bit and you know offer visits. Yeah,
1: is there that is, right? the, yeah that, that's a, actually that's that's a very important point. So we talked about all of the all of the things that have to happen before a physician is allowed to show up on the telehealth system. From the moment they show up, there are quality programs that monitor what they do, not unlike what happens in hospitals.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That, and, you know, because it's digital, we actually have a better ability to monitor, you know, that people are not abusing the system by way of you know, prescribing practices and, you know, secret shopping and a lot of those kind of programs.
0: I'm wondering um, how you then ensure that those doctors will be around to see patients for follow-up visits. For example, I've seen a psychiatrist on Amwell's platform and liked her and gone to her a couple of times and then, you know, suddenly found that she's no longer available on the platform. How do you address those concerns?
1: Well, I think, you know, we have to be honest and humble about what telehealth can do and what telehealth can't do.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: There's a lot of issues with our healthcare system that, you know, include things like your doctor is no longer in that practice or what a lot of Americans are experiencing. Your doctor is no longer in the network because your employer changed your insurance. Mm -hmm. Many doctors are moving from their practice because they're you know consolidating there's a lot of pressures i think that's another topic of how the industry is changing they're joining hospital systems and changing so it gets sometimes tricky to maintain a relationship over years or, or sometimes over a short period of time with the same physician technically that can happen also through telehealth actually on the flip side telehealth allows physicians significant more flexibility to continue to be on the system because it doesn't really, isn't really married to a specific building or a specific zip code. We tend to think of telehealth as something that gives consumers or patients great flexibility. It does the same for physicians. Mm
3: -hmm. So
1: if I'm a clinician and I set myself up on telehealth and I move to another city or I move to another state or I'm on vacation for three days, for as long as I have an iPad with me, I can continue to see my patients. I can continue to be available. And I'm not saying that that you know, stops physicians from retiring altogether or, you know, or changing direction, but telehealth tends to be as sticky or more than physical practices of physicians.
0: Mm-hmm. How have the laws changed over the past 10 years to make it legal to see a doctor over video anywhere in America?
1: Well, you know, I, I can tell you that when we started doing this and, you know, we, we take the blame of being, you know, one of the first, when we roll out that service in Hawaii, on the day we rolled it out, the Hawaii um, Medical Board literally sent a letter to physicians and said, you know, if you're going to do this telehealth thing, your license is going to be at risk. So this was the starting point. hmm Funnily enough, it was so aggressive that the regulators in Hawaii, the state senate, the governor at the time, said that makes no sense because there are people all around Hawaii whose alternative is to see nobody,
3: mm-hmm. or
1: so they're going to be stuck with whatever healthcare issue that they have. How could you possibly say that seeing a doctor, even if it is, you know, with a different lens and with a different kind of modality, how could that be worse? Than not seeing anybody at all, and they changed the law in the state of Hawaii and passed the law literally three weeks later that required that every resident of the state of Hawaii should be able to get healthcare through telehealth, and you know that was kind of the beginning. It has moved since to different states around the country, uh, but that was a very very long you know uh, journey that literally ended just at the end of 2018, like literally last year, the last state, uh, two states I would say, Louisiana and Arkansas, you know, were the last to pass a bill that embraced telehealth. Mm-hmm. So this 10 year journey, but now we're at the point that all of the different states around the country are are embracing telehealth. There's, that doesn't mean the job is done because there's a lot of different flavors of telehealth and there's a lot of rules around payment for telehealth and what telehealth can cover and what, like, you know, in your introduction, what medications are safe for telehealth. But this this train is out of the station.
0: Are there any medications that you don't think are appropriate to prescribe via telehealth?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, and and that kind of ties to the previous question. The the reason why, you know, all of the different states finally got to the point that they embrace telehealth is because of a single concept that I think prevailed, which is telehealth is not a different kind of medicine. At the end of the day, it's a way to allow great physicians, good physicians, licensed credential physicians to interact with us, with Americans, at the time of need. The discretion that those physicians, or I should say clinicians, use to care for you is what they're trained to do in med school. Right? If we give them a license, we're essentially telling them, we trust you to apply your best skill and judgment as to what should be done with the patient that's in front of you. Sometimes, you know, the patient walks into your office, put aside telehealth and says, you know, I have this thing in my throat and it's, you know, they literally tell you the diagnosis. And sometimes a patient walks in and it's not very clear and they say, you know, doctor, everything hurts. And it's a little bit of a harder diagnosis. But we still trust the physicians to do the right thing. And if they see a patient over telehealth and they think that they have enough to establish a diagnosis and provide a prescription, then we should let them do that. And if they are professionally not in a position where they think they've seen everything because either they couldn't examine exactly or they don't have a lab test or whatever it is, then they are going to be accountable for telling the patient, listen, this is not the right way for your care. You actually need to be seen. With that principle means also that physicians should have discretion on what medication they prescribe. There is a problem, however, and I I think that's fair, that a lot of people are trying to hide under the fact that the physician isn't really there in the room with them in order to get medications that are hard to get, like narcotics or like lifestyle medication uh, or medications that their doctor refused to give them. And I think that we're still a little bit away from being in a position where we have enough um, protection in the system to do that. And as a result of that, I think we and I think a lot of other leading companies are playing it safe. We don't allow controlled substances and we don't allow lifestyle medication to be prescribed over telehealth. Now, there's a couple of players in the industry that do that. I think in every industry, there are bad apples. Um, but that, that's anyway our position on this.
0: By lifestyle medications, what do you mean?
1: Um, you know, erectile dysfunction medication, mood stabilizers, there's there's a couple of those that require a higher level of, um, you know, of caution, primarily because if they're dispensed without any kind of, you know, pre-evaluation of the patient in patients that have liver disease or in patients that have, you know, other kind of medical conditions, if you don't check for those before you give those medications, you can do some harm. So different states have different rules around it, but there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, we need to be careful to allow telehealth to do good where it's safe and not kind of make telehealth the Wild West where everybody can do anything and compromise patient safety.
0: Are there services or drugs that you hope to be able to offer uh, via American Well or the consumer arm Amwell that you just don't feel the technology and the science is there to allow you to offer them safely?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, you know, a big part of the evolution of the last couple of years um, has been telehealth becoming much more than just urgent care platform. We're seeing now a lot of clinicians physicians and otherwise, using telehealth regularly with the same patients over and over again, especially patients who are, you know, either challenged because they live too far or because it's just hard for them, you know, in, in their life, they're busy, or um, or because they're bedridden, because they're chronic patients or elderly patients. In those circumstances where you have essentially an ongoing relationship with a clinician Obviously the threshold for giving you prescribing or changing your medication should be different than if it's a blind date.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Because we have at this point thousands of hospitals that are on our system where specialists and physicians are taking care of their patients, we're seeing a lot of medications you mentioned beta blockers or you know a variety of therapy medications and you know psychiatric medications that can be used in the context of an existing relationship to telehealth.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think this is, you know, probably the biggest change is that where telehealth becomes a way for clinicians to talk to patients, whether they're new patients or existing patients, all of the tools of the trade that allow physicians to deliver care eventually will become available also through telehealth.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Roy Schoenberg. Another question I have about the technology is um, video services like Skype are notoriously bad and um, notoriously kind of clip out or um, shut down when you don't want them to. Even when we were starting the call for this podcast, we had trouble hearing each other. And that inevitably happens when you're talking to a ton of patients all day over video. How do you address the fact that a video connection can be a little shaky sometimes?
1: Well... You know, the truth is that there's a lot of stuff I can talk about, how the software, you know, the infrastructure is becoming better and, you know, how how bandwidth is increasing across the nation and everything else. At the end of the day, however, disconnects are going to happen. Maybe you sit in Starbucks, and I'm not bad-mouthing Starbucks Wi-Fi, but, you know, sometimes it's heavily utilized or whatever it is, and, and you get disconnected. To make it worse, you know, if you're talking to grandma over Skype, you talk for a minute and then look, it freezes. So okay, whatever. You're going to call again.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Talking to a physician and this is a visit, which is paid for and is covered by insurance and claims are submitted and all that kind of stuff. And clearly, you are in an anxious state because you need healthcare. People tend to be significantly less tolerant to the disappearance of the physician of mm-hmm. their school. And the way to solve for that is to actually build some smarts into the infrastructure that kind of monitors the well-being of the interaction. And if the interaction goes away for whatever reason, in a couple of seconds, the system engages to say, hey, it looks like these two got disconnected, let's try to get them back together and proactively call the two parties and say, hey, you got disconnected, do you want to reconnect? Mm But if you lost connection in video in, in, you know, in Starbucks, you may not be able to reconnect. So the system need to be smart enough to say, if we can't get you back on the video, let's just call your phone.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: These capabilities are, are in the system and continue to be refined as we see more and more ways in which people are trying to connect through telehealth.
0: Is that a capability that AML users have right now? I haven't actually experienced that one before, or is that something that you're rolling out later?
1: We do. So Emil is one flavor of our system. We have about 300 different telehealth products that are running mm-hmm. the whole platform under different brands. Mm-hmm. And each one of them has a slightly different version of the system. I'm not sure which one you're using, but most of the systems will have that capability before, before the end of this year. Cool. Some of them already have it, um, and some of them will have it by the end of the year.
0: Um I think when a lot of people think about big innovations in consumer healthcare uh these days they automatically think of Theranos and I'm wondering what advice you would have for someone who's looking to be an entrepreneur in the healthcare space and who wants to do something that's like really innovative but doesn't detrimentally overpromise what they can give consumers.
1: Yeah, I would be and it's kind of funny for me to even say that, but I would say that To bring technology into healthcare, the heavy lift is the healthcare stuff.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: You need to understand that video conferencing between a patient and a physician is the maybe 1% of what it takes to make that happen. You Mm -hmm. need to understand who the patient is. You need to understand where they live. You need to understand what insurance they have. You need to understand where they are on their deductibles. You need to understand what group they belong in to. You need to understand... Who the physicians are that are in the network, what specialty do they have, what credentials do they have, do they carry a license, do they have the privileges to treat that patient, what records need to be put in front of the physician for them to do a good job with that patient, how do you manage prescription, I mean I could go on and on and on, there's a whole laundry list of healthcare stuff that not only that you really need to make sure that you thoroughly understand or get to work with some people who understand that, and put all of that into the equation before you claim, Eureka, I have a great innovation that's gonna change the world. Because healthcare is tough.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Try to think about how your technology, inventive and innovative as it may be, factors into traditional healthcare. And if you for some reason can't make that happen, think again.
0: You talked a little bit earlier about how doctors are trained to make good decisions about patient health care. And if someone comes in with a diagnosis that they have come up with for themselves, for example, they're supposed to, you know, maybe be critical of that or say, oh, you got it wrong. Um, But I'm wondering, as technology advances and you're talking about, you know, handheld consumer devices where the patient can kind of self-examine, how does a doctor who went to medical school 30 years ago really understand all of the nuances of that mode of getting care? Or how does a therapist who, you know, trained even now understand, you know, whether they're able to address a patient over, say, text message therapy?
1: Yeah. You know, I wish there was a simple answer to that question. You know, when I was practicing medicine, I can tell you, coming out of med school and internship and residency – If you think that the fact that we have white coats, you know, means that we know how to handle everything, that couldn't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. There's some learning that comes by experience. And for the most part, and that's true, by the way, not only with telehealth, that's true with new medications and with new procedures and everything else. Um, And there is a certain level of tolerance and understanding in the healthcare industry that experience is something that gets accumulated. Growingly, and I think that's one of the other kind of side revolutions of telehealth, because telehealth is digital or runs on a digital platform it's a perfect opportunity to put tremendous amount of new information in front of the physician at the scene of the crime
3: mm-hmm. it's a little
1: like a teleprompter right i mean you're you're seeing the patient and imagine that on the side of the screen there is you know so many different analytics engines that are coming back and saying oh the patient didn't refill their medication and they have a comorbidity and they have a risk factor and they haven't done a screening test and whatever it is there's an overwhelming world of information that can literally get into the into the field of view of the physician. Mm-hmm. And theoretically they will be more informed. But if you're gonna throw too much information in front of them, two things can happen. One is, you know, it's not gonna get taken into consideration, or you're gonna threaten physicians to the point that if they can't catch up with all of that information, they will commit malpractice. Mm-hmm. That will make them not want to do this. And I think part of the art of creating good telehealth systems, and we have that's not just us. I mean, there's a lot of you know other you know partners in that, is to really take the burden of saying, what should the physician see right now that's relevant for what they're doing with that specific patient?
0: So I'm imagining but, if I'm in a conversation with a doctor, they might get, a little, um, I want to say pamphlet, but it would be virtual, like a little notification on the side of their screen, like saying like, okay, these were her past surgeries, these are like the past diagnoses, so they can work off of that as they're looking at me and having a convo with me. Is that right?
1: It's right, but it, it goes, you know, with the use of artificial intelligence and some other analytics tools, we can even say, you know, this patient showed up for the flu, But it also happens to be that that's a 50-year-old male that's never had a colonoscopy, or that's a Mm -hmm. 40-year-old female patient who has never had a mammogram. Mm -hmm. And the only point of that is to really take advantage of that interaction with the clinician, not necessarily for the clinician to become, you know, the evil person to tell you, you've got to do this and you've got to do that, but really to try and understand what is the best way we can help that patient with that opportunity of being in front of them.
0: One more question. Um back in 2008, when it wasn't even legal to see a doctor over video, and you were going to get all this pushback in Hawaii, what made you say, no, this is like really the way to go?
1: Yeah, well, the personal story behind it, at the time, I was actually single. And I, I tried the the online dating thing, kind of the match.com. I'm not, I'm not making any kind of publication here. <laughs> but it occurred to me that the You know, what those dating sites were actually doing actually to this day is they connect supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that at any point in time, literally at this second that we're talking, there are a lot of clinicians out there who are perfectly willing and able to be in front of a patient, but for whatever reason are not. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that we're talking, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, more Americans out there who could really benefit from seeing a clinician, but are challenged for one reason or another from actually getting to see the clinician. Mm -hmm. And if there was a way for us to use technology to take advantage of that reality and broker them to one another, we will have the potential opportunity to redistribute healthcare altogether.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Roy.
1: Terrific, thank you so much.
0: Okay, we're going to take one more quick break, but we'll be right back with this week's edition of Don't Close My Tabs. With lucky landslots, you
1: can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the
0: limo and we lost track of time.
2: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, it's time for our next segment, Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me is my colleague Aaron Mack, a writer at Slate covering tech, who will be hosting the show next week. Hey, Aaron.
2: Hey, excited to be on the show.
0: Excited to have you. Aaron, what is your tab for this week?
2: So my tab is a group of YouTube cooking channels, which have been around for a bit, but I've been watching them a lot this week, especially. I'm talking particularly about Bon Appetit, Binging with Babish, and Epicurious. Uh, So I grew up watching the Food Network on TV, which mostly consists of extremely polished how-to cooking shows where nothing really goes wrong, or it's a high-pressure competition with really stern judges and i think what makes the youtube cooking channels so great is that it's suited to everyday cooks um and it's one of the ways that youtube has actually really improved on network tv i think the improv vlog style of videos on the platform makes it so that cooking seems really intimate and fun the youtube cooks always mess up and it's no big deal stuff is disfigured it's uh it's fine they just laugh about it so even really ambitious projects seem like something you could cook at home and as someone who has a lot of Uh, anxiety about perfection in the kitchen. (laughs) I really appreciate the lack of formality that I think YouTube culture promotes.
0: Have you been cooking a lot more this past week as well?
2: Yeah, just because of the YouTube channel. uh, I made a brick chicken, which is when you put a brick on a chicken to make it crispier, which uh, I never would have thought of unless I had seen a (laughs) Bon Appetit episode on it. So definitely recommend for finding uh, things to cook on weekdays.
0: That sounds so much more complicated and innovative than anything I will ever make.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty easy. You should try it out.
0: Cool. Um, My tabs this week are, I have two, but they're related. They are both stories about the rise and fall of Babe.net, the website that is most famous for breaking the Aziz Ansari Me Too story somewhat clumsily. Um, One is from The Cut by Allison P. Davis called The Wild Ride at Babe.net. The Aziz controversy was just the beginning of trouble for the website. And the other is by Amelia Harnish at Refinery29, and it's called Frat Feminism, Inside the Rise and Fall of Babe.net. And what I love about these stories is I just love, like, insider media, uh, you know, TikToks on things going well or things going incorrectly or, you know, things... Being subject to deep human error and I really like the fact that both of these stories came out kind of at the same time it made me have this sort of like fire festival hulu netflix feeling like oh we're really <laughs> gonna get that like a lot of this and from different angles um but not in so much of like a delighted way because I'm in media and it is not good when websites <laughs> shut down even if they were maybe a little um touch and go with their professionalism and needed improvement but yeah i just found them really interesting and it's kind of like a nice inside look at the inner workings of what was going on behind this big story
2: yeah the details in those pieces are just astonishing uh the amount of drinking that goes on it's like mad men levels of drinking just in the office it's just yeah. Jaw-dropping.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I liked I can't even remember which story this came from, but um one of the editors was like, Oh, I'm turning twenty-five and I'm gonna age out of <laughs> being able to write for these websites. Um it just you know, it's misguided, but in like a really relatable way also. Because I've had yeah. that feeling too.
2: I just turned twenty-five actually a couple weeks oh ago and God. that really <laughs> hit me like really hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm a little older than that, but <laughs> I also get it. I also liked how, um, I think in the cut story, they talked about how they, like, when Alice and the reporter came to the office, they had apparently, like, staged all this stuff for her. And right, we're like, yeah. yeah, our meetings were never that serious. We were just, like, playing dress up for a reporter.
2: <laughs> and they staged the uh, happy hour drinks, too, after work. It's uh, <laughs> just, yeah, the audacity of it.
0: Yeah. But it also, like, I'm really delighted in reading these stories because I like a good trash fire, but they also left me feeling really (laughs) sad because I, you know, I want websites to be good and I want them to last. Exactly. All right, that's our show. You can email us at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Shan Thanks again to our guest, Roy Schoenberg. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com futurenews. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Danielle Hewitt, who engineered for us in D.C. We'll see you next week.